0: You're listening to a DM podcast.
1: All right, guys, my special guest today is Steve McNamara. Steve is a former professional rugby league player, and he's the current head coach of the Catlin Dragons in the English Super League. His impressive playing career includes nearly 350 first-grade games, which began at Hull FC, took him to the Bradford Bulls, Wakefield Trinity, and also Huddersfield Giants. And he also represented both Great Britain and England in international football. Post-footy, he has successfully transitioned in coaching. I did mention he's currently head coach at Catlins, but he also won the 2018 Challenge Cup at the Dragons and has also previously been head coach at both Bradford Bulls and the English National Team. Also adding to his impressive resume, has been a stint in Australia and in the NRL as assistant coach to Trent Robinson at the Sydney Roosters and also assistant coach to Stephen Kearney at the New Zealand Warriors. I'm honoured to welcome to the podcast, Steve McNamara. Steve, welcome, buddy thank you very much all right mate first things first because actually in the prep to doing this one of the most impressive things i saw from you mate your tedx speech so i was going to ask <laughs> just a little bit off the kind of cuff to start compared to your playing and coaching career was it nervous to kind of prepare for this and then deliver this tedx
0: talk very very you know i've got asked to do that and um I didn't quite know exactly what I should be doing, how I should be doing it. Did a little bit of research. And, uh, you know, when you're in the, the rugby league environment, when you're standing up in front of a group of people, you know, you get used to that, you know. But, yeah, this was completely new, uh, completely different. Challenged me, took me out of the comfort zone. And uh, I was glad I actually did it. You know, it was a, it was a good opportunity to do something like that. And, uh, yeah, uh, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it because it was nervous and all that. But once it's done and it's out of the way, then, uh, yeah, certainly it was a good thing to do.
1: Yeah, man, I thought it was actually quite valuable, especially sporting. Yeah, I think sporting people get a lot out of it, but I actually think the yeah. business world, like some of the little things that you brought up and some of the things that people probably don't consider, I thought it was valuable for them. So I think it's an actual avenue into a different field, I reckon, man.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, without a doubt, the business side, the business side is really interested in the sports side. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's no two ways about that. And you, uh, you know, you speak to people in business and they all want to understand how things have worked. And I, and I think, you know, Thinking back one of the subjects there was it was what the talent that whispers don't look for, you know, don't look for the talent that shout, looks for the talent that whispers and and basically that you know what we were talking about there was was that you know we you know, we can all go to a an under 15s game in rugby league and all pick the best player out because he's generally the biggest the strongest the yeah. fastest. But look for the talent that whispers. Look for the you know the kid who you know maybe not had the he's not as mature as the others. He's not had the same upbringing. He's from a split family. He's not had the support mechanisms. But yet he's competing at a reasonable level. And yeah. and don't always just look for the things that hit you straight in front of the face. You know look look for look deeper than that uh, and explore some of that. And um, yeah, it was it was a good uh, it's a good way. And I think it's really relevant in rugby league. It's a, an early maturation sport. Like I said, the standout players stand out from an early age, but. Quite often, the very best players, and I use Jamie Peacock as an example. It was mm. the, the England and Great Britain captain for ten years. He he, he never came through until he was twenty-one, yeah. you know, which was, which is which is late in England. And uh, his talent, you know, it was whispering there, wasn't at the forefront of it. And if we'd have given up on him, we would have lost our Great Britain captain for ten years. You know, and uh, you know it's as good a story as you can get for a player who, um, like I said, wasn't the standout star as a young player.
1: Yeah. JP is an actually interesting one because before he made it in first grade, he spent a year in Wollongong. Yeah. So he kind of he applying his trade. But again, in my research, I found out that you actually played lower grades at St. George. Yeah. So how yeah. much was a grounding except – because had you already played first grade though in England before you came to the St. George? Had I you? had.
0: I had it. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, look, I signed for Hull FC when I was 17. Yeah. My first professional coach was Brian Smith. Mm-hmm. Brian Smith, like I I am so fortunate, so so fortunate that he was my first professional coach. I had a good upbringing. My dad was a coach of coaches. Yeah, you know, my dad, you know, uh, brought me up in the right way, and you know, made some sacrifices for me and everything else. But then you get handed over to your first professional coach. Brian Smith came in, and he was incredible. He he taught uh, he taught so much. He knows more about rugby league than any other coach I know. Yeah, and he he you know. He taught us as a whole group on that. We improved as a team and everything else that goes with it. He left and went to, to St. George. Mm. Um, and at that time, for me, I was going great. I was 17. I played first grade at 17. And then, you know, I was regular in the team through eight, age of 18 into 19. And things were going great. Yeah. And he actually took my eye off the ball. We got I got dropped for a semi-final and a final of the premiership. And it was out of the blue. I think I played 18 games consecutive before. Um, that was Dean Busby, right? Football. Yeah, got, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dean Busby, yeah. yeah. Dean Busby took the spot, and another young player. Um, and at that point, it was when the seasons were split. Yeah. You know, so you could finish your season in England and then go across for three months and, and play in Australia. And Brian Smith gave me the opportunity. And although I'd I played first grade, I went across there and played um, under 20s. You yep. know, I think it was in the yeah. yeah. Yep. Best experience, one of the best experiences of my life to go across there. Uh, you know, see these kids compete. You know, these 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 uh, lower grade players. You know, people in that team. You know, Jason Stevens was in that team. Team Nathan Brown was in that team. Yep. I lived with uh, a couple of blokes, Jason Donnelly. I don't know if people yeah, yeah, the, Jason the Donnelly, Brandon Pearson, who tends yeah. to Brandon Coston and Scott Parks, and just a whole round life experience for me. And playing lower grades really opened my eyes up. And and at that time as well, I, get, I had the opportunity to um, I worked in St George's Leagues Club. Okay. You know, on Jubilee Avenue, I lived in an house down there, went in the least club part-time. But in the other spare time would be to sit in the coach's office and Brian Smith was there and Max Ninnis yep. was there, he was a very intelligent guy, unfortunately passed away now, mm. uh, and just sat and listened and watched, pe- watched these coaches prepare to coach the team on nice. the night. So great experience for myself.
1: Mate, I live about 15 minutes away from Cogra. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, yeah, did, you, did yeah. you live in the area?
0: I learned I I learnt a, a, a few things there. I remember uh, the dollar drink nights at the roundabout <laughs> in Airsville. I remember that. It yeah, yeah. was a Tuesday night. Yeah, you know, there was it was great for my career, but obviously great as well to to get some other experiences. But yeah, I really liked the area, I really liked the club and it was um it was a great opportunity for me.
1: Yeah, well, what year was that, ninety two?
0: That was 91. ninety one, nineteen ninety one.
1: Yeah. Just before they actually – yeah, because they made
0: the grand final 92-93. So. 92. Yeah, 92. Wow, and, uh, what an experience. Yeah, it was good. And like you said, Brian Smith, uh, the huge influence, you know, he gave me a, a great grounding as a professional to start with. It gave me that opportunity to to go across there and then obviously I would pass across again uh, when I went back to Bradford as a player.
1: Yeah. Now, last cool. night I had Willie Poaching on the show and he obviously works at Hull KR and he was telling me a little bit about the rivalry between the two Hull teams. When you were growing up yeah. in Hull – who did you go for and how was that rivalry for you?
0: Yeah, I was, I was Hull FC, black yeah. and white. You know, it's black and white versus red and white. So it's okay. the East versus the West. <laughs> so- I was actually, you know, lived on the East side. Yep. Uh, but always followed Hull FC. Um, uh, and it was great. The, the The teams in the early 80s were sensational. Like they were, we, the Hull FC and Old Car were at the top of the tree, probably from – 1980, uh, which was the famous challenge cup final when Hull FC played Ulki R through to you know 1985-86. And during that period, yeah, some of the overseas influences at Hull FC, you know, so the key influence, yeah. you know, you had uh, Gary Kemble, Dane O'Hara, James Lulaway, Fred Aikoy all yep. playing for all FC and Matt Broadest, Gary Prom, um, you know, uh, Gordon Smith all playing for Ulki R. And then you know, he sprinkled in Peter Sterling came for yeah. one year. Peter Sterling played for a year, I think it was 1985. And, you know, he was the, probably the biggest name in, in Rugby League at the time. So it was a great time to be a fan, uh, but the rivalry was intense and is as intense as ever now.
1: Yeah. What about your mates? Were your mates whole, whole KR? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. you, know, <laughs> you, you get a bit of blues? <laughs> you a mix. Yeah, you have a mix of everything. But, uh, yeah, it's it, – it's, uh, it's strange because it's, it's the only place that there is. You know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a city and it's got two teams and people quite often say you should merge and get together and be stronger and all of that. But I don't think it's ever it would ever sort of happen. They merged the academies actually a couple of uh, okay. years back yep. um, to try and produce more children playing the game in the area. But uh, I think it lasted three or four years and now they're back uh, in separate entities.
1: Yeah. Now, Steve, not every forward gets the goal kick. Number one, yeah. who, who taught you to goal kick and at what age was this?
0: Yeah, early, very, very early. My dad, um, you know, just used to go out and kick the ball, you know, and just, used to go out and spend some time. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, probably from that early age, you learn about sacrifices. And 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 my dad, you know, my dad was just a working-class family. Mm. Um, you know, my dad was a toolmaker and I used to uh, collect the scrap metal, and then we'd jump on the back of his motorbike, and we'd go to the to scrapyard, okay. cash that in, go buy me some boots, so I could go and play <laughs> and kick and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, and it was great. But no, he's, he used to take me out there and he used to practice and practiced a lot and and really enjoyed that part of it. So it's a good string to have if you if you can kick a ball and uh, sometimes can get you in the team. <laughs> Did you used
1: to? Because when I was growing up, I used to enjoy you know with the sand and the dirt and making the actual round before the actual you know the tees. Did you prefer the sand towards the
0: the new age tees? Yeah, I I you know that's how I grew up the same the same as and. Spent a lot of time with a bucket of sand and making sure it was wet enough and, <laughs> uh, and everything else. And these fancy teas came out and took all the fun out of it in some regards. <laughs> but uh, now nah, they are good now. You know, and and uh, you know, but no, it, it was as it was in that day, and you still had then kid that okay eye, Mike Fletcher. He'd literally just dug his heel in the ground, stuck the ball in, and would kick a ball as good as anybody. Um, so yeah, you know, Again, you know, we come up, we grew up in a in a country what is football. You know, soccer, if you want to call it whichever way around, yeah. is is a uh, number one sport. Everyone plays football, even if you're a rugby player, you love playing football. Yeah, and uh, so we all sort of tend to be able to kick a ball, uh, and we actually see that when we have some fun in training and games, and you see the. You know, we might put the Southern Hemisphere boys against the against the, the French or the English and you can see you could tell a mile off which ones are European and which ones are from Australia. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, that does work the other way as well in the swimming pool. You throw throw everybody in the swimming pool and you can tell who the Aussies are and all the English are we sink. <laughs> we sink. Uh, we sink. But, yeah. Just different ways of being brought up.
1: Definitely. Now, Steve, you know you signed with Hull at seventeen. So obviously you're quite a talent coming through. Did you make all the rep teams before you signed with Hull?
0: yeah yeah that was that was the thing I played um England schoolboys uh, and I played for two years. I played a year young mm. and then I played in my own age group as well. so things had gone like successful for me. I was an early mature, right? I, I I was probably bigger than most of the kids. I was one of those blokes that I spoke about earlier, one of the talents that probably shouts and jumps out in front of you yeah um and that's what I was saying. I was really fortunate then to to get the education that I got from Brian Smith. As a player, because I think that really, really helps me. And then um, my first setback was, as I said, when I got dropped for the semi final and the final. My career was going swimmingly. I was, yeah, I, everything was going great. Mm. And you need that adversity. Sometimes you need that rejection. You need that, that you're not good enough. You've, you've, you know, this isn't working for you. And it had gone well for me as a young boy. So it, I was 19 when I first got that. And I think that was, you know, I was lucky that I had some good support around me and that. I recovered from that because I see so many kids nowadays who can't deal with that. They're the superstar kid. They can't deal with the rejection. They can't get, you know, they've never had it. You know, you you coach an international team. It's a really interesting one. Mm. You coach an international team, you get 24 blokes together who have never been dropped for the last five, six, seven years, never been left out of the team. You can only pick 17 and you leave seven players out. And they aren't used to that. They're used to being picked every single week. They're the superstars of the game. So dealing with that rejection, being able to uh, cope with that, I think the best, the very best players, as we spoke about, people like Jamie Peacock, they're the ones who come to the the fore. Those people who have experienced that at a younger age and can overcome it.
1: Yeah, that adversity that you talk about, because coaching is a cutthroat profession, as you found out. Most coaches, some do realise, some don't realise that, you're going to get probably sacked at some point during your career. Yep. Did that early adversity really help you, especially when you lost your gig in England?
0: Um, yeah, I think, you know, all the experiences, it is cut through. You're right. And I, and I see some of the things, you know, I see the, the NRL this year. Look at the number of folks who have lost their jobs this yeah. year. That's that's incredible. It feels more like the English Premier League, the football scenario yeah, in does. England. It feels yeah. like that, you know. I never used to think of Australian Rupert League changing coaches mid-season. But for whatever reasons it's, it's happened and the scrutiny on everybody is huge, you know, and we, we accept the scrutiny on us on the field is fair, is, you know, that's, that's what we do with power cells out there. Mm. But the off-field stuff, um, you know, that's sort of like going a little bit too far, you know, as it looks like from from this far away, you know, in terms of some of the things that have been said and done in Australia regarding, regarding some of the coaches. Uh, but no, lo- losing the, the England job, you know, that was that was for me. That was really really disappointing. I was in Australia at the time, and and I get it, I understand it. That you know, uh, people have the the opportunity to change, but yeah, uh, you know, I found that out watching. Uh, I was actually in in, in Clavelli at the time, at the house, uh, sat watching television with the kids, and you know, the ticker tape on the bottom of the yeah. television when it tells you an headline when Bennett's the New England head coach, and it wasn't the way to find out, you know, without a doubt. Um, so that was a disappointing thing, but it is what it is, and you move on.
1: Yeah, club coaching versus international coaching—how much does that do yeah. you change as a coach when you do either?
0: I think it's completely different. I think there's, there's some similarities with it, but with the international team, you you don't work with those players day in day out. When you yeah. when you're a club coach, you work with those players all the time. You get to know them. You know, really, really well. You know, it's a team, it's a club. You know, all of the bits that go with it. Internationally, and this was one of the things with England. I was really fortunate that I was the assistant coach mm. for England before I got the head coach's job. Yeah, I think in some, in some, um, in some environment, it's best to be fresh coming in, completely fresh coming in. You change a coach, and you want a fresh start. But when I took the job over from Tony. I was fortunate that I was the assistant because what I'd done is I'd seen the difficulties that Tony had faced as the head coach. Yeah, I actually saw some of the problems that, and it wasn't mistakes that Tony made at all. It was just the problems that was faced as an international coach. Mm. If I'd have been fresh coming in, I would have not have seen those problems. So I, as an assistant, I saw that. Hang on, this isn't like club coaching. This is different. We, we have to, um, you know. Uh, fix some things that will make a difference for us rather than messing about with things that are not really going to make a difference. And the things that I saw there was we had to create a two-team mentality with England. Mm. England was a a team where the coach would ring you up once or twice a year and say, congratulations, Tristan, you've been picked for England. Come and turn up, play a game, and off you go again. And there was no no feeling of of being a team. So we had to create a two-team mentality that – you played for Leeds and England you played for St Helens and England you felt you was part of two groups and that wasn't the case you know so you know, we set about uh, meticulously sort of working around that and then the other thing there was what you have the luxury of particularly as an international coach is um, you know call it addition by subtraction mm. we actually could add to our group strengthen our group not by bringing something in but by taking some things away okay. and by that I mean some personnel some playing personnel that just worked right for the England set up the England group if we wanted that two team mentality at that stage and like I said I could see those problems that Tony faced Tony Smith faced yep. as an assistant and then we worked around fixing those areas it's not about coaching the, the players to have good marker player or come off your line square or you, you know all of that it's more mm. about making that group of players feel like a team because the the quality of players, they take over.
1: Yeah. You know, from an outsider's perspective, looking at what you guys were doing, like it felt sometimes weird because, you know, you just mentioned Tony Smith. He's Australian. Wayne Bennett yeah. is Australian. I just felt that yeah. England and Great Britain were playing better under yourself. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what Shane, Shane Wayne does now because you guys yeah. are British. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I couldn't imagine coaching – the Great Britain team, because I'm not British. Do you get what I
0: mean by that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. You know, I do, I do get it. And, and like I said, you know, <clears throat> I, I'm extremely proud of the job that we did with England. Like, like, like it, w- we had a well-class environment for that group of players. We had a, a, a well-class spirit amongst the players. Yeah. We were, you know, we were coming to fruition. You know, we had, a, you know, Sam Burgess, James Graham were at the top of the game. Some of the players in England, people like Ryan Hall was at the top of his game in England. And we were a team, you know, we really were a team. And uh, we'd failed, we'd just failed. You know, with the World Cup in 2013, I think, you know, I think it was 13 seconds on the clock. Sean yeah. Johnson comes up with a piece of magic. But that's how top-end sport should be. You know, the best playing the best. It was a great game and we just missed out But that feel and that passion and that understanding of what it means to be an England coach really has to come from an Englishman. Yeah. What I did when I came to the NRL, I really came... I came and worked at the Roosters, which is an unbelievable place to work at. Yep. But I was England coach at the same time. So really, I was looking at, well, what is the Australian psyche? What is it what the Australians do? Because this is how we do it in England. So really, I was sort of eyeing up the opposition. So. I really liked the 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 split role that he had at that stage and I thought it helped our team.
1: Yeah, for sure. Now you brought up Sean Johnson. Was it hard to to mate to go to the Warriors and coach there? Was it hard to see his face? Cause he like you guys, like you just mentioned, should have won that game. Yeah. And seeing him every day. Yeah. He's a brilliant
0: player though. He is a brilliant player. Yeah, he just came up with that with that piece of play. You know, that game. It was at Wembley Stadium. Like I said, it was two Top teams going at each other. Not a lot in it. We were, I thought we were on top for most of the game. <clears throat> Sonny Bill Williams comes up with a carry you know, in the last minute. We get a nice shot of penalty. It gives them field position. <clears throat> and Sean comes up with it. And and you know we had a laugh and a joke when I went to the Warriors about it. You know I said <laughs> to him, "Look, I was, I was probably about thirteen seconds away from a nighter. I was going to be <laughs> Steve, because he won the World <laughs> Cup, and he took it all away from he took it all away from me." But. Nah, no, nah, is that absolutely fine? That, that that when it happened, when he scored that try, you know, yeah, I think the world stood still for about five seconds. You, know, you had to be in the stadium to understand that it was sounds, <clears throat> that feeling of of disappointment, you know, of, of of losing. Uh, but when you sit back and look at it, like I said, that is what top end sport looks like. That's how it looks like. It, the margins should be that fine. Unfortunately for us, we was just on the wrong side of it that day.
1: Definitely. Now we'll touch more on the coaching at the back end of the show, but just a little bit more on your your career. Obviously at Hull, because you spent quite a, a few years there. What was kind of, in terms of memories, your best memory about playing at Hull? Uh,
0: playing for your hometown team, um, captain in your hometown team. I was twenty-one at the time. Yep. Um, <laughs> it's funny because another big influence, Roy Simmons. Was the yeah, coach, he coached you as well. Yeah. Uh, at the time, uh, Royce, Royce is a legend of a guy. I actually spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. He rang me up. He'd had a few too many schooners and he <laughs> gave me a call. And, as Royce does, uh, as Royce does. But, um, you know, just playing for your hometown club, the team that you've supported, you've followed. Uh, you know, as a kid, you've travelled around the country following it to get that opportunity to play for them and represent them and captain them was, was big. And like I mentioned, Royce there at the time, you know, Royce. Now, from that initial grounding with Brian Smith and the education of of the Athers at a to Z rugby league, if you like, Royce came in and Royce Rice was just you know he taught us how to compete, mm. you know, he taught us he taught us how to fight, he taught us how to never give up, you know how to turn up to play every single week, and it it was him. it that was Royce all over, and and it was great, it was great for me, great for the club, you know, and I don't know whether people remember it, he actually ran five marathons. On five consecutive days. He was the coach who was retired, but we wanted to sign Des Asla. And we never had the money in the budget to sign Des Hasla. Wow. So he did a fundraising event and then he ran five marathons five consecutive days. He lost all his toenails, he could hardly walk. But he did it. And he raised the money to sign Des Hasla. And we brought Des Hasler into the club. And again, you know, when you're a, a player and you're being coached by a person with that sort of commitment, it mm. rubs off on you.
1: For sure. Now, Royce actually coached only a couple of years after he retired. Because he played yeah. in that grand final. He, you know, he got to win a grand final his last ever game. Like, I'm not sure if you guys got yeah. to see that game live, but this, no, I, yeah. I remember yeah. that as my first – because I started supporting league in 89, but 90 was my first – in 90, I was like seven years old. So that was my first yeah. memory of watching a grand final and watching him and MG just cuddle as he's scoring a try. But he's literally coaching you just a couple of years later. It must have been amazing to see this superstar from Australia and pick up these tricks from him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, You know, he's got two tries, didn't he, in that final? Was it two? I think he scored.
1: Yeah, two. One in the first half. One one in the first half and then one off MG to wrap it up.
0: Yeah, like a dropout, yeah. And uh, no, he wasn't. And we, you know, from England, like we – now, maybe we did this too much as young kids. We put the Australians on pedestals because it was, you know, you you, you remember in, in 82 and 86, or mm. you might not remember that, but 82 and 86 and 90, the, the touring kangaroo oh, the tours scenes were, were like,
1: yep.
0: like they were, we all just as kids, we just wanted to go and watch and see these superstars of the NRL. And Royce was part of that, of all that crew coming through. So yeah, to see to to see the, him doing that, to then watch him in the grand final and then for him to come across and coach us, Uh, We were fortunate. We were fortunate as a group that we had a a couple of people like that. And then when he brings someone like Des Hasler across, you know, I'm 21, I'm the captain of the club. He's made me captain, but I've got this 33 year old Des Hasler who was just like, (laughs) again, when you talk about commitment and the way to train and the way to prepare, you Mm -hmm. know, we've we've got probably the world's best there in in, in our ranks as well. So, yeah, really good influences. The madman, Des Hasler himself. (laughs) Mate, 92. Did you tour Australia with Great Britain? Yeah, yeah, I did. I was, um, I was on holiday. Uh, I was in a standby squad. Yeah, I remember going on holiday to Greece. I had been there one day and uh, got a phone call. Was on the there's no mobiles. And I was in the hotel room and the England manager called me up. said, we've had an injury less has got injured. Yeah, where <clears throat> do you want to come? You've got an hour to decide. And I said, mate, I don't need an hour. I'm, I'm on my way. So <laughs> tell me where to be, what to do and uh yeah flew out i think i went from a greek island into athens and then into london to get a a visa and then direct there into into australia i remember i remember landing at sydney airport myself and david Myers, i'd called david Myers, were called up yeah we uh we got the the chauffeur took us across in the manly pacific and takes us in and Oh, so the boys have got a day off tomorrow, and as you walk in the reception, they're, they're all there on the drink week, just go on the table, singing songs. And thought, wow, this is a, this is a welcome to the great Britain Tour. But yeah. awesome memories, great memories. You know, Ellie Ramley was on that, Andy Gregory, Sean Edwards, all those types of people. So, again, it was, um, yeah, you know, I was just lucky to, to uh, do that, yeah. uh, and get on that tour and play some midweek games. Did you get to play? Because see, my brother he supported
1: Parramatta. And you guys played him in one of the midweek. You remember when Martin O'Fire had to race Lee Odenright? It was that day. Did you play that game?
0: No, I came just after that. I came just after that. And we, um, I do remember that, but I came after that and we played at Newcastle. Then we played um, up on the Gold Coast when Wally Lewis was coaching. Yeah, okay. The Gold Coast. And then we went across New Zealand and we played a couple of games and a couple of tests across there as well, but. That was the year, 92, where Great Britain beat Australia in Melbourne at Princess Park and beat them convincingly as well. And it went to a decider uh, up at Brisbane Lang Park um, the week after.
1: Yeah, back in those days, Great Britain had a bit of a habit of winning that first game. It it used to – because we used to come up, like, watch – wake up early and watch these kangaroo tours. You know, you mentioned a few of them, but mostly mine was 90 and 94. And we lost both first tests in both those series. Yeah. And really set yeah. a rocket up here in public in Australia. We really thought we were going to lose those series.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, and that's been the habit. You know, we, we've, we've not been able to, we've probably not, we haven't beaten Australia in a one off test for, for long, you know, too long now. But in terms of that actual test series, winning an Ashes, winning a World Cup, we've not been able to get across the line. And that's been the thing. We've been good enough for one game, but not good enough over a period of time. So, uh, but yeah, the, look. Regardless, of the the level of competition has always been fierce. It, you know, it's always been fierce, and it's so interesting. It's really interesting to see in the NRL now. It's you know, because again, when I was coaching at Bradford as a young kid, mm. you know, at that time at the club, you know, we brought Sam Burgess there, George Burgess, yeah. Tom Burgess, yep. John Bateman, Elliot Whitehead. Wow, if we could have kept that crew together at Bradford, what a pack! You know, yeah. it would have been some, but. I just think it's a credit to the English players. We don't have as many players as you do in Australia, but the ones that have come across the NRL have been fantastic. You know, without a doubt, they've really added value to our competition. we yep. have just got to pull all up together now and, and get across the line in a, in a test series.
1: Yeah, totally agree. Mate, the first time I actually watched you play, because I support the Sharks, and 97, you were playing for Bradford and you played them in the World Club Challenge. You obviously, yeah. we came over there and then you came over here. And then, obviously, you yeah. also played for Great Britain when they sent the Super League Australia. So I got to see you play a little bit, and I was quite admired yeah. by this. You know, your work rate and your defence was was just first class. But yeah. how did you first get that yeah. move to Bradford?
0: Say again, sorry. How did you
1: get that move to Bradford?
0: Well, I was all FC at the time, and uh, the ambition of the club wasn't, wasn't great at that stage. Mm. Um, Brian Smith had come back. Uh, he came back and coached Bradford he took the job there and made an approach there I'd actually agreed to go to Wigan just before he got the job and then it sort of all changed around Brian came there and uh, the opportunity came to to go to Bradford it was uh, the start of the Super League it was the start of the summer era it was probably one of the best times uh, for Rupert League in England the start of the summer era Bradford Bulls Leeds Rhinos Wigan There was huge crowds Mm. uh, lots of interest and that team that uh, Brian put together at Bradford uh, was probably the first time I'd been involved in a team where all the pieces of the jigsaw fit together. Like he, he put this group together, what was a strange group, you know, individually, you'd look at us and go, not quite sure with all of this, but it fit together. Mm. Like it, it really didn't. I don't know whether you remember the name Graham Bradley, the penguin. Yeah, the penguin. It was a, yeah, the penguin. The penguin was a huge influence in that team at that time. But again, he you know, couldn't touch his toes. You know, he could hardly move. Yeah. You know, but it fit, it worked within the group that we'd had. And we uh, we started really the, the Bradford Bulls, the summer era. You know, everything good about the Bulls started from that point.
1: Yeah. Steve, can you describe? Because I've never been to Oddsall Stadium, but – from watching it on TV and seeing it on Google and all that sort of stuff, the place looks yeah. scary. I can only imagine what it would be when there's fog and there's night. Like, yeah, what was it like it is, playing there?
0: Yeah, it, It's great if you're a Bulls player, yeah. it was great. And, and the best way to describe it is just imagine a quarry, you know, imagine digging a, a quarry <laughs> underground and then putting a stand around the yeah. side of the walls and, and that's it. So when you enter the stadium, you enter on the bus and – you see the tops of the floodlights. So you sort of like level with the top of the floodlights and then you have to have to go down, you know, the bus has to wind its way down to get down into this cauldron sort of scenario. It's a bit like gladiator, yeah. you know, the, like that. And, um, and that's how it was. And it was a, it was a tough, fierce place. And like I said, at that time we were averaging, you know, between 15 and 20,000 people were coming into that. And it was, well, we kicked off at six o'clock on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon in summer. And it was just a spectacular place. It, the concourse around the ground, mm. the actual field, sort of lent itself because it was an old speedway track around it. Yeah, yeah. So it lent itself to all this sort of razzmatazz and carnivals and everything else going around, and it just worked. It worked, and it was it was like I said, the start of that summer era. Big crowds, all the razzmatazz that goes with it, but a team what was really really good on the field as well.
1: Yeah. Now you spoke about the success. Now in terms of grand finals. They didn't bring that for a couple of years, right? Because you won a premiership '97, correct? Yeah, that's
0: it. Yeah, yeah. and Challenge yeah, Cup as well. So super League start. Yeah. It was still first past the post, if yep. you like, uh, and that's how we did it in England. And we won. We won that. I think we won twenty twenty out the. We won our first twenty games straight. Wow! And, and yeah, we. Uh, and it was great because we was on yeah, we was on five hundred pound a <laughs> win at that time as well. So we were like we were like every week we we was like this is it this is us. So, um, but yeah, we we won the the title that year and then they brought the prem the actual premiership as it sits like in Australia now in ninety eight uh, grand final we missed out on ninety eight we didn't have a great season 98. 99, 1999, we returned and played our first grand final at Old Trafford got beaten that game. Um, but yeah, and since then, obviously, that that's the way the competition's been run since.
1: Yeah. Now you've won a Challenge Cup as a coach, and obviously you've played in a couple as a as a player. The Challenge Cup versus the Premiership. What's for us? Can you describe it for us from Australia?
0: <laughs> we we had this conversation last week with our with our playing group. We played the Challenge Cup last week. Yeah, yeah we were in the um, against Wakefield. Right? Yeah, yeah, against Wakefield. We played Wakefield. And we actually sat the group down for the benefit of of people like um, James Maloney, Israel Falao, yep. some of our overseas players. To actually ask them, do you do you know what the Challenge Cup is? Mm-hmm. Do you understand what the Challenge Cup is? Do you understand what it means in our game? Um, and just went through the, the the history of it a little bit, you know, and, and so on and so on. It was the first trophy that as a Catalan club, we've ever won, so it's, it's huge in our recent history as well. Uh, and you can't underestimate it and I think it's one of those games isn't it? where I know the Australians used to wake up early yeah. was it early or stay up late whichever way around it yeah, is yeah it was it
1: was about 2 or watch. 3 o'clock in the morning yeah
0: yeah it was probably the one game that you would probably get and it was because it was, it's live on BBC which again you know the games are on you know Sky TV the regular Super League games mm. BBC I think we had I think it was 1.4 million people watching last week it's wow. a huge thing Yeah, you know it is different so Trying to choose between that is really, really difficult, uh, and we often have that debate ourselves. So I think the best way is you go out for both of them. If you keep going and you, know, you keep going, if you fall out of one, then you, you turn your attention. But it's got that tradition. That's what it has got. It's got that tradition, and the trophy is a sensational trophy, yeah. and it's Wembley. Mm-hmm. And Wembley is is iconic. You know, quite, quite often people don't talk about the Challenge Cup final. They talk about Wembley. We're playing at Wembley. And uh, that's what Wembley does. So, yeah, very hard choice for me. I'm not sure. I'd uh, yeah. love to win a premiership. That would be the ultimate now for us as a Dragons because we, you know, we haven't done that yet. Um, but, yeah, we would never give up on the Challenge Cup.
1: Yeah, Steve, watching the highlights the other day of the cup that you won, one of the things that, that really does stick out is they let the coaches lead the team onto the field, which is amazing because most coaches, It looks it's like the only sporting event in the world. I can't even even think about football where the coach gets to
0: actually lead the team on the field. What's that like? Yeah, that's that is sensational. It's, you know, the chairman, the owner goes mm. at the front, then the coach, and then your team follows behind you. And that's a you know, for the coach, it's good, it's part of it, and you get the feel for it. Yeah. But it's more for me, for the owners of the club. The owners invest so much of their own time, their own finances into an organization and, and you get your one day out. You might only get you one. You might only get it once in in the lifetime of what you're doing. But that's the payback for the for the owners for me, and that's that's the important thing. So, you know, our owner Bernard Gouache, he's well. He when you talk about blokes who work hard, he starts work at four o'clock every morning. Yeah. Every morning he works. Starts at four o'clock. He works through to eleven thirty. He has a couple of hours' siesta off. He starts again at three o'clock and he works through till eight o'clock at night. That's his daily routine. That's what he does. And then on the side is love his Catalan Dragons. So for him to lead that team out on that special day at Wembley um, to play the French national anthem in that stadium, mm. big, really, really big for him.
1: Yeah, It looked really, really cool. Now, Steve, the back end of your career. You know, we talked about Royce Simmons having a fairy tale, you know, finish to his career. How much did you learn about yourself? Because Wakefield financial problems. Yeah, Huddersfield got promoted. No, sorry. Regular relegated and then obviously you guys yeah. got promoted after that. But that would have been such a learning experience, especially back into your career. What was the kind of standout sort of out of that?
0: Yeah. Um, well, the Wakefield experience was, was really poor. You know, we, you know I, I went there and, and probably what I learned from that was I remember leaving Bradford, didn't really want to leave Bradford, mm. uh, but was going to Wakefield. I remember driving to sign the contract and had a sick feeling in my stomach horrible gut feeling I was driving there going this don't feel right this don't feel right yeah should have stopped should have turned the car around should have gone back and said I'm sorry but it's not it's not going to happen didn't do that and I really learned from that uh, as things unfolded there within I think it was 10 months the club was was broke it was bankrupt everything that could go wrong but yeah <clears throat> that wasn't that it was Wakefield's fault or my fault it was just sometimes a player fits a club and a club fits a player and I just you know for me it just wasn't right yeah so I then went to Huddersfield, um, and Tony Smith was was the coach there. Uh, We'd struggled a bit. The first year, uh, we got we got relegated. You know, we got relegated, which was a huge blow. Mm. But I remember during that period, because Tony was a new coach at the time, he wasn't proven. Yeah, and I think we lost the first um, fifteen games. Wow! Like and, and like. The coach would normally, he'd be gone. Be gone. He'd be, you know, <laughs> there's not a chance. Like we've brought this Australian in and they've lost 15 games. But Tony was, um, he could see improvement it, it, and we could sense improvement. We just couldn't get wins. We couldn't get wins. And it was a really good lesson for me that you know in front of the group, Tony was really confident. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. It will work. It'll happen. And as each week passes by, he didn't flinch, didn't move, carried on. This is what we're doing. And we believed it. Yeah. We believed it. And eventually, we come up the other side. Now, we, we got relegated and we missed. You know, we got relegated by, you know, on the last day of the season, the results went against us and we got relegated. But that, for me, was a, a really important lesson of sticking to it because when I went to Catalans as a coach, mm. we had to survive the million-pound game when I first got there yeah. to, to escape relegation. And then the, the start of the full season, we only won two from our first eleven. So I was relayed back to lots of these um, signals that i have got from Tony earlier on. So, But no, went back, got relegated, and then thankfully we all stuck together. And it was a, an enjoyable season. Not the pressure of being in the top league, but a fight to get out. A load of young kids working hard with each other. Gets back in Super League, and then the club established itself the following year. That, that was my job done after that. And uh, then moved into uh, coaching as an assistant at Bradford.
1: Yeah, that million-dollar game you just mentioned, <laughs> that versus yeah. the Challenge Cup final versus yeah. the England semi-final, which one were you most nervous for?
0: Um, it, 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 it's it's not even a question. The million pound game, the million pound game is. You know, at the other bit, you're 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 going to be successful. You're you're either going to get to a World Cup final, or you've missed out on the semi-final. You're going to, yeah. you know, win a Challenge Cup final, or you've come runners up. But this, when you're talking about this, you are seriously talking about people's livelihoods, people's careers, not just yours as a player, the whole group, the office staff, the whole club is built around the income of coming into Super League. And people's families, and, like I said, and livelihoods are on the line on this one game. There is no comparison. That sort of pressure is suffocating. Mm. It's a suffocating style of pressure. And dealing with that, making sure... We could cope with that, and that it didn't it didn't uh, drown us was the big thing going into that game. The other bit, you're, there's more excitement because you're excited about what you're doing. The trepidation of what could be on a million pound game is is massive. Steve, you imagine it in the NRL. Yeah, you imagine in the a million NRL, dollar game. That game, wow! You either play New South Wales Cup or you're playing the NRL a phone year, mate. Please, See? please tell me that the
1: million dollar game when you win it is a million dollar celebration.
0: Do you know what? It was one of the most subdued from the playing group, and respect uh, a huge respect to our playing group because they were playing against friends on the opposite team. Yeah, but they knew what the consequence of of us winning that game was. So when that final whistle goes, there wasn't a wild celebration. There, there was it. I think it was a year or two before that. Salford beat Ulkia with a. A golden point drop goal, and the emotions got over everybody. But our, our playing group at that time, led by Sam Mower in particular, yep. um, understood the impact it was going to have on the opposition group, and it was more honestly, it was more of a, a relief for us rather than a celebration. It was just relief, but it was more a consideration for the opposition as well. It was a, it was a really bizarre feeling, a really bizarre feeling when we got back to France. And um, we flew back into France. There was all the fans at the airport. They were excited, you know, that we'd stayed up. But for the plane and the coaching group, um, yeah, it was just, it was a surreal sort of, um, I wouldn't say celebration. It was a surreal sort of moment for all of us.
1: Yeah. Steve, grab some water if you want, bud. I saw you reaching for it before, yeah, mate. Yeah. Smash no, it. no,
0: you right. Yeah. Nah, yeah. Just sort nah, nah. Of like you you take that, your time. You're not, you've not been successful because you've, Survived the million pound game. You've just won one game at the end of the, a horrible season, where the coach has lost his job mm. and someone else has come in. So yeah, you're sort of you're relieved to stay up, but it's not a success. It's not a celebration of any sort of success. Yeah, for
1: sure, mate. Grab some water, and we'll continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You smash it. I know what it's like when you when you're chatting. You can yeah. you can get get a little bit dry as well. So yeah. I can always edit this out, mate. So all sweet. Yeah. Now, in terms of the end of your career. And when you try to figure out that you had coaching ambitions, was there was there a moment that that you kind of thought that you might be a coach? Um,
0: I think right from the start of the career, right from the start, you know that, like I said, that edu- great education I got at the beginning, mm. and then I still had my mates who were professional players, but they all played local, so I've go back and help coach them, um, and wanted to help them as as much as anything. So I sort of was involved in that but I always had an interest again my dad was a coach of coaches a coach educator you'd go on the coaching courses and he'd he'd help you get through that so it was sort of in me a little bit uh, in terms of that and really what happened was when we got relegated in the season at Huddersfield and we Mm. reduced the number of staff at the club uh, I was playing and assisting Tony Smith as well so I was a senior player stayed at the club helped Tony with some of the backroom stuff, some of the stats, some of the analysis, some of those bits and pieces. Um, when I went, when we got promoted and went back, we, we brought full-time staff back in. So I sort of moved away from that role a little bit. Um, but the last year that I played, I'd got an opportunity to go back to Hull FC as an assistant coach under Sean McRae okay. at that time. Decided not to take that because I wanted to play one more year in Super League. So... Um, it was on the arise and It was on the cards. It was just picking the right moment um, to move from playing into coaching.
1: Yeah. Now, Steve, you've mentioned Tony Smith's name quite a bit, and obviously he's a rival because he coaches at Hull yeah. KR. But yeah. in terms of you, know, you playing under him and then obviously learning under him as assistant coach, is it, is it good yeah. to see Hull KR come up on the schedule now? Is, is, do you guys have a little bit of a rivalry, some beers after the game?
0: <laughs> not at the minute because we we've played a game and we're off into isolation but no um, yeah look Tony's had a big influence on my career you know when I was struggling at Wakefield he t- took me out of that environment I actually played with Tony at St George he was oh, that's right. at St. George. <laughs> when I was 19 Brian was there Tony Smith was there he was part of that group with Matthew Elliott and Mark Coyne and all them old old Brent Bradley all them old boys so yep. I knew Tony <laughs> right from back then um, but yeah he's he's um, you know, Tony fell out of love with the game a little bit at Warrington by his own admission. He was coaching there and he actually had a year out of the game and took some time and re-evaluated everything. Uh, but he's come back and he's come back at OKR and uh, he's brought them back into, uh, into play in a style that is different to everybody else in the competition. I wouldn't quite go as far as saying that it's like the Walker Brothers style, but they yeah. take some risks at OKR. They're, they've maybe not got some of the ammunition that some of the other clubs have They certainly throwing plenty at you, and that's credit to the Chinese coaching.
1: Yeah, for sure. Now, you know, developing your own career as assistant coach first. You know, in the NRL at the moment, you see a lot of assistant coaches that probably aspire to be a head coach before they're ready. How do you, in terms of you developing yourself before you're ready as a head coach, what did you try to focus on?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it is a good question. I mean, yeah, I, I look back to some of those memories and some of those thoughts and sat in that coach's office at St George's Leagues Club as a 19-year-old and watching Brian Smith and Max Ninnison without knowing it, without knowing it, subconsciously learning mm. how all of this fits and, uh, and gets put together. But I think when you, when you first get your job as an assistant coach, <clears throat> it's all about coaching. Yeah. And that's where you get your buzz from. You get your buzz from improving the players, you know, uh, you know, seeing your work with a young player and he adds that into his game, might not win the game but you see that in the player and your team then starts to develop and I think it's pure coaching. I think it's one of the best jobs in the world, the assistant coach. You know, you, you, there's pressure, of course there's pressure but the head coach's job is to take that pressure and as an assistant, if you, you just concentrate on providing the best coaching you can yep. to support your or head coach because your head coach is going to get distracted and moved into different parts different areas particularly in England where we don't have as many support mechanisms around the head coach as you might do in Australia There's Some, you know, you look at Melbourne with Frank Panisi around Craig Bellamy and some of the other people to support the club yep. same at like the Roosters uh, the head coach can get dragged from pillar to post so as an assistant just concentrate on being the best coach you can be for that group And and I think that's what uh, you know, I tried to do it for Brian Noble at that stage, and come up with some new ideas, some plans, some different ways of doing things. Keep it fresh, um, and let let the head coach deal with some of the politics and other things out within the game. Yeah.
1: Now, 2014, Paul Green leaves the Roosters, goes obviously the yeah. coach at the Cowboys. So there's a spot for you, vacant at the Roosters. How did the <coughs> opportunity to work under Robbo come about?
0: Well, uh, it was interesting. I'd, I'd um, again, you know. At various stages of the England coach, I'd visited uh, Newcastle Knights mm. when Trent was an assistant there. I think Trent was an assistant to Brian Smith at the Knights. And then Brian went to the Roosters, Trent went to the Roosters. So I had pass across the, uh, a, a couple of times on that. Yep. Uh, and then there was um, uh, you know, a, a couple of opportunities where I think Trent had come across to England whilst I was at Bradford. And, so we knew each other. We, we knew each other. He'd seen how I'd worked and I'd seen how he'd worked. He actually offered me the job in 2013. Okay. Um, he actually offered me first then and I had to say no because it was the World Cup year for England. We were involved in that and I couldn't at that stage take the time out. And, yep. uh, I remember actually driving down uh, from Bronte, driving down the hill towards the beach there and I'd said no to him and he said, look what you've missed out on. I'm looking at this view thinking, what have I done here? Like, this is like, wow. But um, but then, you know, the opportunity come again in 14. It was a year after the World Cup. The England role was evolving. I was deciding whether, I was nearly close to going to rugby union and working in rugby union. Uh, decided to stay on as the England coach and so let me do the England job part-time. And Trent offered me an opportunity again. So it was a big decision because at that stage, it was right for me but I had a family and the kids were 12 and 13 years of age. So they were at high school in England and yep. you know, disrupting them at that stage was, a, was a, a big ask, but one that I've got to say, it was probably the three best years of our lives across there as a family in the eastern suburbs at the Roosters. I can't speak more highly of the club or, and the area.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because I had Fitz on at earlier this year and he's been offered so many head coach roles. And he doesn't want to leave, but I guess it just goes to show how good a club it is to be at and the supports mechanism yeah. that Robbo and obviously Politis has created as well. What is yeah. it like like in that regard?
0: Yeah, when you talk I mentioned the word sort of jigsaw earlier on, you want to spoke about Bradford Bulls and the actual team on the field how that fit. I think there's a there's a pretty much of a perfect fit there at the roosters. There's a jigsaw, there's a puzzle what all comes together to create what they've got. Now the roosters have always been situated situated in that area. They've mm. always been in the glamour part. You know, anybody who knows it, you know, on the edge of the city, close to the beach. It's the eastern suburbs and everything else. So it's always had the attraction to, for for a place to go there. You know, it's had the finances to do that, but but the jigsaw that they've put together there now, and I mean don't just mean the coaching staff. I, I mean the backroom staff as well. You know some people in the back room there, Kathy and Alex and, you know, and D you work in the back office. All of this, how it all comes together, the physical performance team yep. led by uh, Travis Toomer, the, the medical by Steph Brennan, they've got um, some stability. They've got some excellence there. They've got stability, continuity, consistency. It's a place where players want to go. They've now created this environment, what uh, is successful and will continue to be. But for me, one of the most impressive things that they've done, which they haven't been renowned for, is they have started to produce their own players. Yeah, You know, you look at Nat Butcher, Victor Radley, um, or there's, there's, so, there's so, so many of them now uh, who are coming through that system. And that's something that I think is a, one of the biggest differences for them now. Because if you've got those juniors coming through consistently, you will continually be able to manage his cap. You will continually be able to be strong. And I think what they've put together as a whole group there is, is sensational. It's it's, a, it's flagship for the game.
1: Yeah, you, you know, you talk about those strengths of the junior development. With your role at Catlins now, how hard is it to establish that junior development within that area?
0: Yeah, that is one of our – that is one of the challenges now. You know, when I first came in, the job was to survive the competition. Yeah. You know, we had to survive. Then we had to build a – Uh, a first-team roster that could really compete. We sort of did it the opposite way around. And now it's really challenging to everybody in this area to produce French talent. And we've got some coming through. We've finally got some coming through. Uh, And it's exciting to do that. But in Australia, look, you have so many junior players playing the game. And everybody in Australia will say, we want more players. We want more juniors playing the game. Of course they do. But compared to England, you've got a vast amount of juniors. England says the same. England have got lots of junior players, but they all want more. France is even below that. So, what happens in France? You can't, it's not a conveyor belt in France. You can't get a kid and go, Do you know what, he's not good enough. Toss him away. Let's bring the next one in. You have to polish every single one of them and keep polishing them because you might get that late developer. You might get that Jamie yeah. Peacock. You might get that person. And in France, that's a challenge to get them involved in the game, keep them playing the game. And they might develop a little bit later than than they would in Australia, but uh, we'll get those players coming through.
1: Yeah, I've really enjoyed actually the start of the season. Before obviously you guys got put in isolation. Some of the players in your team, like I've always enjoyed watching Sam Thompsons play. Obviously, yeah. Jimmy won a premiership with us, and then Israel yeah. Falao. Before everything that happened, he, he was a rugby superstar, and then obviously a rugby yeah. league superstar. There are three. The, yeah. they would nearly go into every club in the world. What's it yeah. like coaching? Three players of that caliber.
0: Yeah, I, I think, uh, particularly when you're talking about Tompkins and Maloney, uh, they are genuine, genuine leaders. And and the, some some of the things I learned, you know, so many things from coming to Australia. But looking at the teams that win premierships, looking at Melbourne mm. when they had Cronk, you know, in that team and the best half, looking at. The Roosters when they won it in thirteen, they had Maloney in that team. Looking at North Queensland, they had Thurston in that team. Like there's a common denominator here that that, that is. the team that wins it generally has that type of person in the yeah. team, and they're, they're they're clearly good players. But just because you're an experienced player or a half doesn't mean you're a genuine leader. Mm. And there's only so many genuine leaders about. Unfortunate, oh well, the club have worked hard to get two of the best in Sam Tompkins and James Maloney into that group together. So that is uh for us um a, a real bonus. You know, so if you like, we've got the conductors in the team. We've got, you know, we've got the conductors that can run us around. When you add someone like Israel Falau into the group, you then add your strike. You know, so you've got the balance between conductors, we're running the show, we've got the strike, the blokes who can break a game up. You know, Sam Cassiano falls into that fold as well. Mm. He can change the momentum of the game, he can shift it by one player, one carry. Israel Fallout can do that. And then you need a bunch of workers surrounding that conductors and mm. that strike. And trying to get that balance right, what is that exact number? What does that look like? Um, is hard to do. But I looked at the NIR and I look at the teams that are winning, I look at how it all fits together. Yeah. And those leaders, those people in those key areas, Luke Carey now, you know, look at Luke Carey now oh. with the Roosters, you know, yeah, you know, he's taken over that mantle, I believe, in the in Australian game as whether it's a six or a seven, but he's the dominant one and the roosters have got him. So yeah, trying to get that balance, trying to put those pieces of that jigsaw together, for us as a club, I think we're we're getting closer to that. It's just disappointing that the season's come to an abrupt halt right now.
1: Yeah. When you first saw an Izzy, you know, in terms of the media speculation. The pressure of that signature. What yeah. did you do yourself in terms of trying to keep that away from the group and not to let that distract the team?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, putting it bluntly, I think my balls were on the line mm. on that, not anybody sure. else's. You know, and, and I knew that. I knew that making that decision. I knew the, the controversy and the, what it would bring. Uh, but you know, I read the headlines, same as everybody else. My job was to to look at that situation, fully explore that situation, speak to Israel, mm. understand it, feel it. Uh, and I'd met Israel, you know, but whilst I'd been in, in Australia, I'd bumped into him in the cafe at the stadium, and he seemed a thoroughly good guy. And so my job wasn't to to read the headlines and just go along with everybody else. It was to understand this a little bit more. Why, why is this comic? What is this said? What does it mean? What does, you know, uh, and everything that goes with it. What for me, I was that comfortable after speaking to him and understanding his situation and not agreeing with the comments that he said by any means, but we're all entitled to different opinions. I was that comfortable that it was the right thing to do. That is easy for a coach to sell. If there's any doubt yourself, you can't sell a project. You can't sell anything to anybody if you've got an element of doubt because that comes out in you. But after what I did in the research, I I thought this is right. I can... This is the right thing to do. Let's give him this opportunity. Uh, clearly, spoke to the, some of our senior players about it uh, because it was, it was a, a very um, touchy sort of subject, if you like. You know, and you know could have had an impact on the team negatively. So I had to make sure it was going to be a positive impact as well. Uh, there was some good debate amongst that. Uh, but once Israel came in and people saw who he is and he explained to the playing group his his situation,
1: yeah.
0: uh, they warmed to him and took to him. And the most impressive thing for him is that how he's impressed the group. is his work, I think. He's prepared to work really, really hard for the team. We all know the flash stuff. We all know the brilliant stuff. But he's working so hard for the team at the minute, and, and that's what players uh, admire about
1: him. Yeah, nice, mate. I've got a theory that Kevin Walters is going to give you a call if he hasn't already, because <laughs> Queensland have got no centres, and Izzy's in good form. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise mm-hmm. me. I'm not even sure if what the origin rules of eligibility are, but if you are yeah. if you would allow him, like, well, If
0: you can send me Kevin's number and I'll block it so you can't get through him, that's probably Probably the best uh, – it, it happened, though, didn't it? I remember a few – friends. Langer. Like coming and yeah. Walton, and they, they brought Alan Langer back. But, uh, oh, look, you never say another, but listen, in this in this world where we're at right now in terms of being able to travel and, and everything else, it's extremely difficult for anybody.
1: Yeah. Now, final topic, Steve. Now, the sacrifices of being a coach and family. Now, you mentioned your two kids, and we had a brief chat about them before, and obviously they're both doing yeah. very well. You know, your daughter, obviously, you know, doctor and then studying to be a, to be a doctor, doctor yeah. and yeah. then obviously your son just broke in to the 21 yeah. at Hull, correct? Yeah. 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 So tell me a little bit about yeah. both of them, and then obviously your kind of unique situation between yourself, your wife, and your kids.
0: Yeah. Yeah, look, we we went, you know, 2014, we went to Australia as a family. Uh, like I said, the kids were at a funny age, and um, uh, in terms of high school, they were already at high school, we were changing the high schools, so we were bright kids. Uh, we did the three years, three seasons at the Roosters uh, and then there was at the age where the kids could go back to do their exams in England, it was at that age where both both the sort of years fit there so uh, we decided that they would go back and do the, finish their English exams, make sure they've got the qualifications there. We weren't quite sure where Rugby League would take us so we didn't want to, you know, we wanted to make sure they were, their future was safeguarded. They, they loved the time in Australia, they've got some great friends, great experiences, had to, Overcomes some adversity and everything else that goes with it, all the lessons in life that you need. But they went back. The smart kids, the bright kids, the, Michaela, Michaela went back. She looked after the uh, after that side of it, and I went to New Zealand Warriors and um, yeah, went there for well, it was only eight, eight nine months in the end before the Catalan's job came up. But uh, yeah, it's look, at different career stages of your career, whether your kids are young, whether you know the middle age, whether they're grown up, uh, everyone goes through this. And at the minute, it's and it has them for the last what. It's a number of years now, probably just over three years. Um, it's worked for us um, in terms of Michaela looking after the kids and, and me being out here doing the job. It's not easy. It's a sacrifice, you're right. It is a sacrifice. But there's plenty of people who do those sacrifices in, in any sorts of walk of life. Look at the military service. You look at lorry drivers and whatever it may be. So it is what it is for now. And, um, yeah, you know, like I said, it's worked out good. The kids are, are both on the right track, which is the most important thing.
1: Yeah. Now, just with your young bloke, you know, obviously, he's fast approaching the possibility of you having to coach against him. Have you had a chat about, or a bit of a laugh about you guys having to face each other?
0: <laughs> yeah, sort of like he's—he's uh, he's a good kid. He's done—you know—he's done well. He's, he's carried on his education. He's finished that now, uh, and he's, he's full time with the Hull FC, obviously a rival Super League club. Uh, and he's, he's forging his own way, and he'll, he'll, you know, he'll either make it or he won't make it. He'll do it on his, own, on, his on his own steam, and uh, but he's a dedicated kid, so. But yeah, I mean, they, they could come to that point where, you know, it might get an opportunity, it might not be this year, it might be next season, whatever it may be, uh, where we have to, you know, cross paths and, and come across each other. It'd be very interesting, uh, obviously. Would imagine Nathan Cleary, Ivan Cleary probably did that, but <laughs> I think it's a little way off yet for Ben. He's eighteen, like yeah. I said, he's doing okay, but it's a little bit way off, a little bit uh, off that point yet. So we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it.
1: Is he a forward like you? What's his style, sort of thing?
0: No, no, he's a half. He's a he's a half-struck hooker. Okay. Um, so yeah, he's he's um, you, know, you know he's 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 an, he's an intelligent kid and he's an intelligent football player. He's fit and healthy. Um, and he'll give himself every opportunity and, and uh, like I said if it works for him great if not then he'll, he'll go find something else I'm sure
1: Mate, he would have seen some dressing rooms back at the Roosters, and yeah,
0: that's yeah. I think about back about that some of the interesting stuff that he's seen, and you know some of the things that I've spoke about when I was you know sat in offices and that, and some of the signals that he picked up from dressing rooms, both you know England dressing rooms, you know Roosters dressing rooms, even the Warriors when he came out there, he's had some fantastic. You know, he's been able to experience some some great cultures and some different cultures and see how things work in different environments, even at the Catalans, you know, he come, he's come across and visited and seen how we do things across here. So, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's, a, it, it's a good start for him, but he's on his own two feet now and, uh, like I said, he's enjoying what he's doing.
1: Mate, it'll be funny one day when he runs over Jimmy Maloney. You used to see him in the dressing room <laughs> as a 12-year-old and now as an yeah, adult just yeah. running straight over the top of him. Yeah, some mixed feelings then, definitely.
0: <laughs> now, uh,
1: Steve... But, um, Final final question, just my dinner party question. You've got five invites to a private dinner party. Now, only rules, no family or friends, but you can invite anyone dead or alive. Who would Steve McNamara like to invite to dinner?
0: Five. Five, my friend. Wow. Wow. I've never really thought about this. Uh, Muhammad Ali would be one, bring him across. Um. Probably Pete Sterling then would be another one. Because I want would like to, you know, that all FC fan that him coming across <laughs> at that age. Uh he would be two. Yeah. Uh I'm rubbish at this sort of I'm rubbish at this sort of stuff. Two, that's two. Uh, so you can't be family or friends, that's what you're saying, isn't it? No. Yeah.
1: Not unless you have, yeah. like, a grandpa that passed away without meeting him or something like that. Then I would allow it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd probably bring Jimmy. Jimmy Maloney would come just to, you know, because he'd just keep the party going all night. Jimmy, he'd be, you know, he'd be lively enough there for us.
1: How's he been at training, it's mate? Good. Has he been a pest?
0: Yeah, oh, yeah. Every day, every single day. Awesome for the group. I will say, like, he's, you know, he's come across. Uh, he's playing well, Yeah, you know, and The way he is with everybody, you know, whether it's the youngest French kid to the oldest overseas player, he's the same with everybody, yeah. And that's what people love about Jimmy. Um, but, um, yeah, there'd be three. Uh, oh, you've got me, here. just I need to start this, I need to start this question again. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what, whilst I'm thinking, the one question, the one thing that I would Want to talk about which you want asked was because yeah. uh, oh, you wouldn't know about it. But the challenge of uh, of coaching Catalans when I first came because the interesting story around that is yeah, as a coach player you need to get a trust relationship. Like every relationship relies on trust, but how do you speak to a group? How do you get trust when you can't speak to a team in its own language? How many people were French? A lot. A lot yeah you know, you're, you know over half the squad now all the junior players all the staff everybody you know uh is french so can i just talk about that for me absolutely because Maybe- I, I find it. that fascinating
1: see because for me for my background both my parents were ber- born in mauritius so they're french yeah. speaking so i can fluently right. understand it but i can't talk it back so i can imagine yeah you arriving in france I'm not sure if you knew how to do either, like what the challenges of all that. So I find that fascinating, mate. So go ahead.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it was um, an incredible challenge because you you imagine you coming across to a team that's just changed its coach. So the team's not going well. You know, it's not changed its coach for no reason, so it's losing. But then you go across and you you can't communicate freely with a group. So how do you gain trust with a group, you know, with any well, how do you gain trust in any relationship? You communicate, you speak to each other, you you get a common ground. Now, if you can't communicate with a group, um, completely or an individual, yeah, and they're not playing well, so all you tell them is anything you tell them is neg- negative. So the only things you can tell them is negative. I think you're on the wrong foot in there. So when I went to to the Dragons, I made a really conscious effort um, of positive coaching. Because of this communication barrier to start with in particular, I wanted to, you know, things was needed to be more positive. They were actually a really well-coached team when I got there. I thought they were they were well-coached, but they had too much choice. Yeah. Um, and so they were okay at lots of things and not really good at, at anything. So we reduced choice, if you like, the sub, you know, addition bar subtraction. We reduced that choice. And then we went on this campaign to positive coach and, um, you know, to get that trust. And then also um, asking the French players to help me. So I would say, look, what is what is the word for this? You know, the table, they'd tell me what that word was. And it was a two-way thing. They were actually, I was there to help them improve, but I needed their support and their help to help me through life as well. So it was actually a really good way of gaining trust with um, with a group that I couldn't, like I said, openly communicate with, you know, respect to Trent. When Trent was at the place, yeah. he's got a French wife. He spoke fluent French, and that's a great skill set to have. But like I said, when you first go into an environment, what's what's beaten down, it's losing games, it's negative environment, and you can't communicate, that was an awesome challenge for me as a coach to overcome uh, right at the beginning.
1: Yeah, i tell you what was really interesting, Tony Gigo, because I remember him playing a year at Cronulla in reserve grade. And then the next time, I, I, he just disappeared. And then the next time I saw yeah. him, he was playing for you in the Challenge Cup final. And he, I think he got man of the match, didn't he?
0: Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. T- that, that, and that's Tony. You know, he's had a, you know, I wouldn't say a checkered career. He's had an interesting career. He's sort of been around and flitted around and had a couple of suspensions for some misdemeanours. Yeah. But found his way back and found some incredible form leading up into the Challenge Cup final, took it into the semi-final and the final. And we win the first ever trophy for Catalan Dragons you know, at Wembley, like an incredible experience. Tony, a French player, gets the Lance Todd trophy, which is a prestigious trophy of the man of the match in the grand final. And then on the back of that, it opens up for us as a club an opportunity to play at the New Camp, Barcelona's ground, the following yeah. season. Yeah. Now, the New Camp is a, a spiritual home of Catalan people. Catalan spreads from. F- the south of France, across the 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 first part there of, of Spain, it's a region and that region fights everybody. You know, it won it's ferocious. You know, even now they're fighting for independence. The Catalonian people are fighting for independence. You might see it in the news. But for uh, winning at Wembley as a French club to open that door for the Catalan people to take us in. I mean we went to we went to the new camp to take the trophy. It was um Barcelona were playing Girona and yeah. there was 90,000 people wow. in the stadium. They took the rollers out on the field at half-time of that game. On the back of that, the invite came to play Wigan. We played Wigan during the season. Uh, during the were a Super League record crowd at the new Camp in Spain. And, uh, yeah, f- from winning that, that trophy at Wembley, it opened a few doors for the club and, f- and for the French people.
1: Yeah. Steve, you know you talk about Barcelona. You know, I was just before we got on, I was just reading about – Messi leaving. How, yep. is, how is even like, because you're about half an hour, aren't you, from Barcelona, but it's still the region. Yeah, two
0: hours. Two, two, yeah, two hours. We're, we're half an hour from the border yep. of Spain. And then another. Barcelona is, is two, Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I'm yeah. I'm, as, I'm assuming that
1: Catalan, yeah. that impact yeah. from that club will spread all the way back to you guys,
0: right? Yeah. Like, has it been it's a like, little bit hostile? It's a, like a death in the family. Yeah. I think it's, it's difficult. And you know, we've got and one of our assistants, Toma Bosch, is – He's a crazy uh, Barcelona fan, and they got beat, I think it was 8 2, didn't they, by Bayern Munich yeah, in the yeah. Champions League. And on the back of that, Messi tells everybody he's going to leave. And, and it is the influence he has at that club and has had is immense. I remember playing at the, uh, when we played at the new camp and we were talking about which dressing rooms we were going to use. Yeah. We had to wait for permission off Messi to be able to use the <laughs> Barcelona home dressing room. <laughs> that that to that level. It was him. It was him. It wasn't the club who gave us permission. It was Messi. He was yeah. waiting for Messi. And that that sort of tells you the sort of influence and impact that he has on that club. But the Catalan region is a we're in the south of France. Everyone thinks it's glamour, it's blitz. That's Monaco, that's Nice, that's yeah. Saint Tropez, that's the other part. We're in a real working class environment which spreads the Catalonian region. And um, these people are tough people that they work hard around the and um, they like their teams to play in that same style as well.
1: Yeah. Actually, mate, ever since, you know, I was doing a bit of research, I've been looking up the area. Next year, if they open the borders back up to us, Aussies, I'm definitely coming over, mate. I'll shout you a couple beers.
0: Tristan, honestly, if you get, you know, we're 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 not going to be using it, mate. If you get a chance to come, give me a shout. It is awesome. Like, it's awesome because we're winning now and we're playing well and we've got a good squad. So the benefits of... Being in a great part of the world opens up. When you're losing, you can live anywhere you want. It's not a good yeah. feeling. But, you know, the border is literally, yeah, 20 minutes away to the border. The mountains behind us, if you like skiing, like in April and May, you can be skiing mm. and in an hour and a half, come and sit on the beach and go the see. <laughs> How good's that? Like, yeah. that's, you know, that's, and you don't get many places in the world like that. So, all um, oh, right, I need these five people, don't I?
1: You got two more, mate.
0: Fucking hell, man. I'm gonna have to start this question again, though. I just you had Muhammad Al-
1: Muhammad Ali, you had Michael Jordan, you had oh yeah, who was the third one you had?
0: No, I didn't have Jordan. You did, didn't, did you have Jordan? No, I had I had Pete Sterling.
1: Oh Sturlow. sorry, Mah- mate. Yeah, Muhammad yeah. Mah- Ali. Yep. You had yeah. Jimmy. You're br- you're bringing Jimmy. Jimmy. So G-
0: yeah, i was gonna bring Jimmy. You, you
1: know, you you're admitting that you're not because I just said no family or friends. So you're admitting that James Maloney's not your friend.
0: He's a work colleague, not yeah. a friend. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a work associate. He's not a friend. Nice. Uh Oh, mate. I can't even... You've got me. I can't even think of... Of people... Of... Other people. Ah, no. Okay, I've got it. Yeah, yeah. I've got another one. Yeah. Pep Guardiola. Yeah, nice. Right? So, he's a Catalan legend and obviously whatever. So, I've got Mohamed Ali. Pep Guardiola, James Maloney, Pete Sterling. Yeah. I need one more.
1: Have you got – hey, Steve, at home, do you have Amazon Prime?
0: No, but I've heard about – Oh, there's a,
1: that Manchester City show with Pep and they yeah. go behind yeah. the scenes and just follow him yeah. around. It's brilliant, mate. It is brilliant. Yeah.
0: I've heard so, yeah. There's, there's a Tottenham one out as well yeah. on Netflix at the minute. Mourinho, that's supposed to be good. Okay. okay, I'll go with him as well. So I'll go with Mourinho. You've just triggered me into there. So, so yeah, so my five guests would be Mohamed Ali, Pete Sterling, yeah. James Maloney, Pep Guardiola, and Jose Mourinho. Actually, I've got
1: one final question for you. Catlins yeah. wins the Premiership, they go treble. It's one, two, three. Would you ever, because I've been hearing Eddie Jones wants to coach rugby league, would you ever consider coaching another sport?
0: Yes, and I, have, and I and I have done as well. And um, back in, like I said, in 2013, uh, we'd got beaten the World Cup semi-final, yeah. and I was deciding which path and which way my was going to go next. And Bath Rugby Union um, was actually, you know, Sam Burgess went to, to, to Bath uh, the following year as well. But it was yeah, it was Bath Rugby Union and I actually was close to accepting the deal to go there wow. until. Um, Trent offered me the opportunity at the Roosters again. So, um, yeah, it, it's something I think, you know, once you've, you know, <clears throat> I've been fortunate, I've coached in some great places. You know, you know, look back recently, you know, living in the eastern suburbs, you know, in Clovelly, mm. you know, what a place to live in, in Auckland, in the south of France. They're all exciting projects. The jobs have been great jobs. Uh, and I think as a coach, you need that buzz, you need that challenge and what is going to challenge you next you know and I often think a different sport would make you stop in your tracks yeah you take the knowledge you've got from your game mm. and the management experience but how would you develop that and change that and I think for all of us that um, that that un- that feeling of was it going to work is it not going to work that yeah. actually keeps us alive at times as well so yes I would consider that definitely well
1: Mate, thank you so much for your okay. time, time today. It's been really insightful. And, mate, I'm looking forward to grabbing this beer with you, hopefully next year when I, when I come over. <laughs> Fingers yeah, crossed. Mate. Fingers crossed.
0: No, yeah, yeah, exactly. But, mate, you're more than welcome. Stay in touch.
1: Yeah, definitely. And all the best for the oh. team, mate. Hope the boys get better soon. And I'm looking forward to seeing yeah. you guys in the grand final this year, mate. So all the best for it.
0: Yeah. Gee, mate. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot.